Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Thank you so much, everyone. My name is uh, Elizabeth Robinson. I'm Director of Grantham Research on Climate Change and Environment, and I'm going to be chairing this event today. Uh, welcome to people here in the audience. This is a hybrid event, so welcome I'm not sure why I'm supposed to be looking to welcome people who are joining online. It's, it's an absolute delight. I know there's a, 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 an almost full auditorium and apparently quite a lot of people online as well, so welcome all. Um, and thank you for joining us for the book launch of uh, my colleague, Professor Dave Stainforth. Give you a wave if you want. <laughs> Just in case people don't know who David is. Um, my GRI colleague who's discussing his new book, um, Predicting Our Climate Future, What We Know, What We Don't Know, and What We Can't Know. And I quite like the subtext of this, which is um, we're going to get some idea of how climate science works. And Dave tells me, you know, we should be absolutely trusting some conclusions of climate science, and we should absolutely distrust others. So hopefully, um, I don't think we're going to test you, but hopefully um, when we've finished this book launch and read your book, uh, we will have a better idea of what we should be trusting and what we shouldn't, and, and why, I guess, yeah? Why? Yeah. So... Um, I think, as um, many of us probably know, climate change ranges, raises new um, foundational challenges in science. So we need to question um, what we know, and we need to question how we know it. And this is what David is sort of going to take us on a journey on. So um, the subject's really important, but the science is relatively young, although I think for quite a long time people have kind of known what happens if you pump too much CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, but we really need at this stage, and I think um, ever more than ever, more than ever, um, we need to be able to judge sort of what information is reliable and what is still open to question and understand what to do with that information. And so um, during this event, we're going to think about uh, why the sort of classic, the sort of essential characteristics of climate change make it such a difficult issue to study and what the sort of series of challenges are across various disciplines. So we're going to go through a journey, all in 30 minutes, I believe, a journey of mathematical complexity, physics of climate, and some important philosophical questions about the origins and robustness of knowledge. And use sort of natural science um, in the economics and policy of climate change. So um, that's what um, lies in store for us today. And hopefully you will think this um, this has prompted you to buy the book, and uh, Dave will be signing copies of the book um, outside, so the book is for sale, and you can have it signed by Dave outside. So just very briefly, I'll give you a small bio, um, a short bio on David. So after studying physics at Oxford, uh, Dave worked on ocean modeling um, and studied for masters, and then worked as a renewable energy consultant. Um, he then pursued a master's, then pursued research on computer models of the atmosphere, and worked with uh, Professor Miles Allen, to develop climate prediction.net project. He's worked on research projects addressing climate science, climate economics, climate modeling, and climate decision making under deep uncertainty. And I'm not sure if, if you don't tell us in the next study what deep uncertainty is, it'll, it's in the book, isn't it? It is. We'll get a sense of what deep uncertainty is. Um, and he's currently a professorial research fellow at Grantham Research Institute here at London School of Economics. Uh, we have joining us virtually, I don't know if we're going to see Catherine just now, but we have joining us virtually Catherine Brown, who's going to be uh, one of the people discussing the book after. Um, Catherine was appointed as the first Director of Climate Action for the Wildlife Trusts in 2022. She leads advocacy and internal work program on climate change mitigation and adaptation for these trusts. And the Wildlife Trusts are a UK charity that look after around 2,300 nature reserves. 
she's been working on climate change policy and evidence for over 20 years. And in uh, 2022, she was awarded an OBE in the New Year's Honours List for her services to climate change research. So it's, um, it, it's, it's lovely to have Catherine uh, with us, if only virtually. Uh, before she moved to the Wildlife Trust, she was Head of Adaptation at the UK Climate Change Committee. She was manag and managing the Secretariat to the Adaptation Committee, and leading the production of the UK's third independent assessment of UK climate risk and analytical work on progress in adapting to climate change. And um, this work continues uh, with, with the further in reincarnations. And uh, with us in person, who will um, follow um, Dave, um, talking about Dave's book, is Tom Sheldon. He's, uh, oh, so there's Catherine. I can see you on the left now. We cannot see you. <laughs> um, <laughs> not anymore, we can't. <laughs> um, Tom Sheldon uh, is Senior Press Manager um, at the Science Media Centre. I think we've had a lot of emails, but this is the first time we've actually met in person, isn't it? So that's rather nice. Um, Tom handles issues in the fields of engineering, energy, environment that are in the headlines. Um, Tom has degrees in artificial intelligence and bioinformatics. He's worked on a number of high-profile stories, including links between mobile phones and cancer, GM crops, climate change and e-cigarettes, and as well as issues around preprints and publicity. So quite a broad remit there. Um, so that's our, that's our, um, our author and our discussants. And so just to let you know that the um, Twitter hashtag for this event is hashtag LSE climate change, that is the X hashtag, um, LSE climate change. And just to give you, um, let you know how the running is going to work, uh, this is my brief introduction, um, not that brief maybe. Uh, and then um, Dave is going to um, talk about his book for about 30 minutes. Um, Tom, and, Tom and then Catherine will each talk for about 10 minutes discussing the books, pulling out some specific areas. And then we'll have about 30 minutes for questions. And we've got my colleague Marion Dumas. Um, who's going to um, help with the online um, questions, and I will do the um, in-person questions. Just to say, if you are asking a question in the room, please wait for a microphone, or people joining virtually won't hear. Please introduce yourself and keep the questions quite focused. Um, so keep the questions shortish, and I'll, I might make the panel keep the answers quite shortish as well, depending on how many questions we have, because often we have so many questions that want to be asked, and never enough time to answer them. Um, so I think, uh, hopefully, um, the event's recorded, hopefully, because you never know the technology, but hopefully there will be a podcast available online. Um, and, uh, and it'll be available to watch if it all works to plan on LSE Live. So uh, we're, not a, um, we're not planning a fire um, a, um, test, so if the fire alarms go, the exits are, I'm looking at some, there, the exits are here and here. Please exit in an orderly manner, um, but hopefully that won't happen. So I think at this point I can welcome up here um, Professor Dave Stainford. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks very much, Elizabeth, and thanks to all of you for, for coming this evening. Thanks to everyone online. Uh, it's uh, uh, very kind of you to take an interest uh, in uh, this event and, and uh, indeed in the book. So. This book is uh, about how our understanding of climate change fits together. It uh, spans the physical sciences, um, uh, social sciences, maths, uh, a bit of philosophy. I've seen philosophers in the audience, but only a bit of philosophy, um, <clears throat> economics, and, and more. Um, and of, of course, it's targeted at those who are interested in climate change. But it's also essentially targeted at those who might not necessarily be uh, interested 
in, in climate change, but who are interested in, in the science uh, of, of climate, the science of climate change, and indeed how academia and uh, uh, science work together and its power and its flaws. It's, um, so, so in many ways it, it's a popular science book, that's what it's meant to be, um, but it just happens to be on a subject that of course has, has great uh, social importance and, and social interest, but it comes at it from uh, the science perspective. So the study of climate change um, raises many deep questions in science um, and in social science about how we uh, understand the world around us. And there are many fascinating issues in its study that, um, that are as, as, as big and as interesting and as deep as the sort of the other great scientific questions, the sort of search for, for dark matter, the origins of consciousness. I would argue that understanding of climate change is as, as deep and as interesting as those. And yet, uh, in many ways, those big questions about how we go about climate change science uh, don't come to the fore. They tend to get lost uh, because, understandably, of the, the, the social, the societal importance um, of the subject. And I wanted to write a book uh, that brought those to the fore, um, that showed, that showed uh, the many deep and interesting questions in the subject, deep and interesting and open questions, and perhaps uh, gave something of a hook for uh, uh, young people coming into science to say, actually, there are interesting things for me to get my teeth into here regardless of whether they have a, a passion for the subject, passion, perhaps concern, perhaps even fears uh, about the subject, that there are just interesting uh, questions uh, to address. And I guess I also hope that uh, by bringing these big questions to the fore that there is uh, some uh, ability to raise the level of debate and discussion about how we uh, respond to climate change, respond to human-induced climate change, uh, and to complace uh, that discussion in uh, a, a perhaps better informed context. So many of, the, uh, many of you I, I see here work in climate change, and for those of us who do work in climate change, it's not uncommon to come across uh, the phrase that the, uh, the science is settled, and the science is clear, now it's time to act. And so the starting point really would be, well, is the science clear? And the answer is kind of, well, yes, but also a bit no. So before I get into the details of that, let me step back a moment. When, when I started writing in 2016, um, so it's taken seven years to write, write this book. When I started writing, um, there were lots of uh, books about climate change, and there are even more now. There are lots and lots of books about climate change. I guess I wanted my book to be uh, a bit different, not just another uh, book on climate change, um, because I, I, I guess when most people pick up a book on climate change, they do so with some uh, opinion. They're, 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 they're already, in many cases, deeply concerned about the consequences of climate change, or in a few cases, uh, deeply skeptical about uh, whether there's any concern to have. In my book, I didn't want to preach to the converted. That's not where I wanted to start. I wanted someone opening the book to, uh, and reading it for the first time to be drawn in by the fascinating issues, the fascinating questions uh, that we have within it. Um, and in fact, the word climate wasn't in the original title. 
that's not what I, I first proposed, um, but, uh, but OUP wasn't having that, and quite rightly so. Uh, so uh, climate is very much in the title now. Nevertheless, um, in the first few chapters, I uh, steadfastly try to avoid um, giving any opinions on the social issue, even uh, about whether climate change is real, whether it's important. The starting point is to take an agnostic view on that. But it doesn't really work. <laughs> you can't really do that. Um, and so once you get 50 pages in, I, I kind of have to come clean and sort of say, where do I stand on the issue? And um, that makes a talk like this a little bit difficult, particularly since it's going to be made into a podcast and put online, because it, it means that I kind of need to give away an early plot twist. Only it's not much of a plot twist. Those of you who know me and those of you who know anything about my work know that, uh, where I stand on, them, on, on this issue. And indeed, by, by 58 pages in, I've uh, already put down my 11-paragraph summary of why the reality and seriousness of climate change are beyond any reasonable doubt. 11 paragraphs are really frustrating. It was 10, but I just felt there was something else that I needed to put in there. So it's 11 paragraphs, that's my summary. So to return to the question of, of whether the science is clear, let's just be clear on that, uh, the answer is that the reality of human-induced uh, warming is clear. It's, it's founded on uh, uh, clear physical understanding and it's corroborated by all sorts of observations. The seriousness of the implications for, uh, for the natural world and for human society, society is also clear and there's a robust foundations there and robust arguments. So the existence and the character and the scale of the threat, that's all clear. Nevertheless, there are many things that are not clear. Uh, and indeed there are many, there's lots of things that we don't know and there's lots of things that we don't uh, yet know how to answer. We don't know how to go up about approaching answering some of the questions related to climate change. Um, so while there, uh, and, and these, these open questions exist in the physical sciences, and they also exist uh, in the social sciences and economics. So in some way, um, we know we need to act, but there's also a vast amount of information that we don't know, information that would be useful to help us uh, uh, to guide our actions and to motivate our actions and to um, ensure that we achieve our actions and to, uh, to plan them better. So how do we do that? How do we get better information? Well, in my view, uh, and this is the section of the talk that I, I, I worry about most because it's a, it doesn't go into as much detail but it, uh, as, it, as it needs to, but there's only a limited amount of time. In my view, academia is not well uh, set up at the moment to address uh, many of these issues. And we could uh, take advantage from uh, quite a significant change about how we approach the study of climate change. And what I'm getting at here particularly is multidisciplinarity. It's about the connections between the physical sciences and the social sciences. And, uh, and that being a two-way situation. Uh, there's, a, um, there's perhaps quite a lot of discussion uh, about how the social sciences need to uh, use 
uh, information from the physical sciences better. But I would argue this, this goes both ways around, that the physical sciences also need to have a much greater awareness of the social science issues and what type of information would be most useful to them. Um, I think at the moment there's, um, there's an awful lot of, of work uh, funded, research funded, uh, that is driven by the idea of um, guiding the societal response, being responsive to society's needs. But there's significant chunks of work where either the, the awareness of the um, conceptual barriers to how much we can understand are not acknowledged, which leads to information that looks relevant but isn't necessarily robust. And then there's other theoretical work which might be very robust but doesn't take account of the, uh, the particular characteristics of the practical situation we're in, the timescales of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the warming that we're looking at, which means that you can end up with robust information that isn't really relevant. Uh, and in my book, uh, I guess what I'm looking at is trying to bring perspectives together, bring disciplines together, uh, and talk about how we can generate information that is both relevant and robust to society and to our response to this huge problem. So that's one of the themes. But nevertheless, as I mentioned er earlier, the overarching theme is uh, how doing that involves intrinsically interesting questions that might well be, for, for some of us, just worthy of study uh, simply um, uh, to satisfy curiosity. There are deep questions. So my book presents a series of challenges across the social and physical sciences. Um, many of these are conceptual. They're about how we tie down time, what we mean by climate change, having a common understanding of what we mean by uh, climate change across disciplines. Um, what maths, economics and physics uh, can tell us about uh, these things, how we communicate it, how we use science in economics, how we use social science in physical science, and how the structures of uh, academia influence the conclusions that we draw and our chances of success in achieving robustness. But these chances aren't um, always obvious. I'm not going to go through them today, they're all in the book, but they're not necessarily uh, obvious um, because to get, uh, to get our heads around them and to realise what significant challenges they are requires us to, to think very carefully about what we're trying to do. What is the target of climate change research? And what are the characteristics of the study of climate change that affect the reliability of the research we do? So the first section of my book um, deals, uh, handles seven characteristics, presents seven characteristics which bear upon... Uh, <coughs> when information in uh, climate change research is reliable and really need to be thought about in detail by, I would say, almost any uh, project, research project uh, on, on climate change. What I'm thinking about here is, is saying uh, the characteristics that influence whether information is, is reliable and the, uh, about climate change, and here I'm thinking about local or national scale information, the sort of information that uh, enables us to paint a picture of, um, of, of, of the future under climate change for individuals. It make, it's about making climate change uh, uh, personal, making it relatable so that when we talk about climate policy issues, uh, that can be related to how we see the future for ourselves. Um, so rather than talking about a two degree warming, rather than talking about 
ice sheet collapse. These things are really important. Nevertheless, in terms of uh, wider engagement, we need to have uh, those pictures of what it means uh, to individuals. And these characteristics, I think, are what are important in doing that. So I'm going to uh, briefly go through uh, these characteristics, these seven characteristics. So the first is prediction. It's about recognising that uh, climate change is all about prediction. It's predictions that give society a choice of what future we want. So we know something about what uh, the future will look like if we achieve uh, net zero globally by 2050, for instance. Um, and we know something about what the future will look like uh, if we only achieve net zero by 2100 or maybe don't uh, do anything to uh, combat greenhouse gas emissions. The, it's, the difference between the two is what gives us the choice. That's the motivating factor uh, for, um, for taking action. And it's the, these pictures that are important. It's those predictions that are important. How it tells us, it allows us to ask the questions of uh, what future do we want? How much are we willing to spend to get that? What are we willing to give up? Or, put a more positive spin on it, how do we shift our perceptions of what we value in the light of the choices we have? We don't have the choice of saying uh, we're going to do little today and then still have a great uh, climate future. If you're going to do very little to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that goes along with a particular picture of the future and has to be seen hand in hand. And it's scientific understanding, or academic understanding more broadly, scientific and social science understanding, that gives us this choice. Um, so being clear about what we know and what we don't know is absolutely crucial uh, to, to the whole of the climate change debate. Um, and uh, just to uh, labour the point a little bit really, when we talk about climate predictions, at least in the uh, climate science community, we tend to be talking about changing temperatures, rainfall, changing frequency of heat waves or uh, uh, floods, or maybe uh, changing crop yields or the size of things like that. But I would say that we need to be going much further than that. We need to be painting pictures of society. If the impacts of floods and, and uh, landslides and heat waves are such that uh, we're going to be constantly rebuilding, needing to rebuild communities, uh, transport, electricity, communication networks, if there's a constant demand to do that because we're constantly being hit by physical changes in the climate system, uh, then we will be unable to spend on other aspects of our society, whether that's education or social care or health systems, they, these are, are not unconnected. They cannot be uh, disassociated. And those pictures of the future are about what sort of society you can imagine being consistent uh, with this changing physical world. So to, to quantify that, uh, we need to uh, bring in the social sciences very deeply, but we start essentially from the physical sciences. So it's all about prediction, um, but it's a certain sort of prediction. It's not like predicting uh, the outcome of rolling a dice or of a tomorrow's weather. And that's because the system itself is changing state. It's like the dice changing to a different sort of dice. And we know that. Um, that's fairly clear from uh, observations. I'm not sure. Oh, I can't point. Uh, so these, these are just a very old plot here of... Uh, of carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere over the last 650,000 years. It looks very similar up to 2 million years in, in the latest report that I have that. And over this entire period, uh, greenhouse, uh, carbon dioxide um, 
concentrations have been between 180 and 280 parts per million. Anatomically modern humans only arose around 200,000 years ago, and uh, uh, human civilizations only around 10,000 years ago. So human civilizations have lived in this really stable period here. Since the Industrial Revolution, we have taken uh, the climate uh, has gone way outside the uh, bound of 180 to 280, up to 418 in 2022. If you make allowance for other greenhouse gases, up to 454. Now, this affects how much energy there is in the system, and we're talking about coming way outside anything that we've seen for at least at least the last two million years. That means the way the system works will be different. It's a change in the uh, dice that we're rolling. And just to, uh, and that, that means that our observations of the past aren't necessarily going to describe how the processes will work in the future. If you think about, if you've got a kettle and you observe it warming from 60 to 90 degrees over a minute, you take some observations, if your only knowledge of the future is based on those observations, you'll say, well, it's warmed by 30 degrees in a minute, it's going to warm by another 30 degrees in the next minute, you're going to get to 120 degrees. But of course, we know that's not true. Uh, none of us would expect that. We know that uh, the water's going to boil at 100. Um, this is the kind of uh, thing we're talking about. The, the way the climate system works will change, and the observations we have of it in the past don't necessarily tell us uh, in what way. Now, this is important for climate change science uh, more generally because it affects how we should uh, test and evaluate our climate models, for instance. The fact that a climate model does a good simu simulation of the past isn't necessarily an indication that it's going to represent what happens in the future. Or in climate e economics, if we're going out trying to say how do, what are the impacts of climate uh, change on our economic systems, uh, on our societies, Going around and saying, well, actually, this is what we've observed as, as societies uh, in, the, in the recent past, how they have behaved in response to changes in temperature, will only provide a certain limited uh, piece of information as to how they will change in the future. What we need to do is consider processes and interactions. We need to consider kind of the physics of the economics. And we need to understand how... Uh, and we need to understand and imagine how these systems will behave um, in circumstances which we've never before experienced. We require a certain degree of imagination here, and that's something I'm going to come back to in a moment. So um, the third characteristic is that uh, climate change is essentially a one-shot bet. We take um, actions, we've taken actions, some actions in the last... 20 or 30 years, we're going to take actions in the next 10 to 20 years. These will affect how the rest of the century uh, pans out. But in making climate predictions, we have to make them uh, probabilistically. You can't make uh, a deterministic prediction of how the, the future climate will develop. You're going to, a uh, climate prediction consists of some sort of uh, probability distribution for different types of behaviour. So that might be saying that there's a 90% probability that the change in temperatures in some place will be between 3 and 6 degrees or something. Um, 
Now, we're all actually familiar with these things. Probability predictions are not unusual. We have them in insurance uh, and investment. We have them in everyday occurrences. When I think about how long it's going to take me to get to Paddington to, to uh, catch a train, I have some idea of, of a distribution of how long that might take. And we use those distributions um, repeatedly. Um, and the distributions help us uh, make a good decision on average. Sometimes I'll miss the train. Sometimes I'll catch it, the distribution helps them make a good decision, but I'm most likely to catch it and only miss it uh, as, as often as I'm willing to accept. It's that repeatability in using of the predictions that we are familiar with, but that's not what climate change is about. Climate change, we take our actions now, and there will be one 21st century, and that's it. The, we may get good predictions about the probabilities of different outcomes. They might be good predictions. They might be accurate probabilities. But we will only experience one. Um, and that raises questions about uh, our attitude to risk, particularly societal and existential risk. The fourth characteristic is nonlinearity. And this uh, goes to the most mathematical aspect of the book. Um, and it's, uh, uh, it's just the core of, of what I'm talking about in the book. Now, many of you will be familiar with the idea of mathematical uh, chaos, the idea uh, expressed by Ed Lorenz in terms of uh, is it, uh, could the flap of a butterfly's wings in Amazonia affect whether you have uh, a tornado in uh, Texas at some future point in time. This kind of sensitivity is absolutely crucial to weather forecasting, but is often taken not to be so important uh, for climate forecasting, uh, because weather forecasting, we're trying to be a bit more uh, deterministic. We're trying to um, um, define exactly what will happen within a particular trajectory, whereas with the climate, we're trying to get those probability distributions. We run our models uh, many times with slightly different starting conditions, which is great, and that gives us different outcomes in the future, and from that we build our probability distributions. So far, so good. But that's not where the challenge is coming. The challenge is uh, coming from uh, three additional aspects there. First is that what tends not to be considered is that these probability distributions, these climate forecasts themselves, uh, are sensitive to the conditions that we assume for today when we're making a prediction. Second is that we're using models for this, but the models are different to reality. So even if we had good observations of the climate system, uh, we wouldn't, we still have questions over what is the most informative way to start up our models. And third is that this aspect of nonlinearity doesn't just affect how we start our models. It's not just that butterfly effect. It's also about how we create our models and that how, we, uh, how we build them and how close to reality they need to be. And there's been suggestions and work done um, uh, uh, by people in this room and also, I believe, on, online on, um, uh, that, that raise questions about just how good a climate model needs to be to be able to make good predictions. It could be that prediction, these sorts of predictions are sensitive to the finest details of how they're formulated, uh, a concept called the Hawkmoth effect, um, named by Erica uh, Thompson. Um, so all these forms of nonlinearity are crucial um, to understanding climate change and uh, crucial to designing experiments that will tell us uh, most usefully about the future. Fifth characteristic is simply the lure of powerful computers. We live in an age of uh, massively rapid, uh, of rapid, massive 
expansion of computing capacity. Um, and this has changed the research landscape way beyond, beyond climate. Uh, but in many ways, we're dashing forward with, with an assumption that if we can represent it on a complete computer, that we can uh, answer a question. We're not really in a world where that's the case yet. We haven't worked out how to answer certain questions uh, with computers. And the lure of powerful computers takes a lot of resources away from thinking carefully about the problem, or even think from thinking carefully about how we use the computers to, to help answer the problem. Um, the sixth uh, is uh, multidisciplinarity, um, which I've mentioned several times. All of the disciplines, there are so many disciplines involved in studying climate change, and they all interact with each other. And they all come, experts in these disciplines all come with their own perspective and their own uh, understanding of what they think is most important. And by and large, those perspectives are not shared. Um, and it would be extremely helpful if they were. Um, and then finally, perhaps the most obvious one, which most of you coming into the room would be aware of, is that there's an urgency here. Um, we need uh, information to help us plan the future um, and to understand quite what we know. This is kind of obvious if you're thinking about climate change, but it's an unusual factor in, in fundamental research science. And a lot of what I'm talking about here has aspects of fundamental uh, research science. So this idea that we need to uh, not just get the right answer, but get the right answer essentially now, means that uh, we really need to reflect a lot harder on, on where the, the structures that we're using, the approaches we're taking, uh, can actually give us the answers we want, uh, or actually given us something and something different. Um, so those are my characteristics. They interact with each other. Many of them um, do not matter if you're having, uh, if you're address, if you have one sort of problem, uh, but in combination they do matter for climate change. So nonlinearity might not be a problem, but when it's combined with extrapolation, it is. The lure of new computing isn't really a problem except for the fact that it's combined with an urgency uh, role. So I want to finish uh, in the last uh, few minutes by just. Uh, raising three further points. One is just to, um, to say that uncertainty is part of what we know. With climate predictions, there are inevitably uncertainties, and there are different types of uncertainties with different characters. But we need to approach the communication of, of climate uncertainty differently. We shouldn't think of there being predictions and then some uncertainty uh, about them but rather that predictions consist of information about the scale and character of the uncertainty. The uncertainties are part of the prediction, and we need to uh, communicate that better, and we need to um, use that information better. It should be intrinsic to all our responses to climate change. The second thing I want to, to return to was this aspect of imagination, and I just want to give you a, uh, a short tale. Um, back in 2008, at the time of the um, uh, financial crisis of, of 2008, uh, the Queen came to LSE and uh, she met a, a number of economists and she asked them, um, how come the global financial crisis had not been predicted? She, she said, if these things were so large, how come everyone missed them? And uh, the economists went away and they formed a, a group called the Global Financial Crisis Forum under the auspices of the um, British Academy. Uh, and uh, talked about it, presumably, uh, quite a lot. And then came back and, uh, and they wrote to the Queen and they said, well, 
this, wasn't, this was missed by them. Uh, this was principally a failure of the collective imagination of many bright people <laughs> to understand the risks to the system as a whole. And I do think, uh, I think this is a, a warning sign um, for the sort of information we get from climate change and how it is used in society. As I said earlier, the, the seriousness and concern about climate change is really obvious. And my concerns about the uncertainty being misrepresented are almost entirely on what would be called the upper tail. It's on, the, it's on whether we have actually represented the seriousness or the risks of the seriousness of climate change uh, at, the, at the worst end of the scales um, uh, effectively. And then finally, oh, I do still have a minute. Uh, finally, I wanted to say a word about values. Um, it seems to me that we all need to work out our opinions on climate change. We all have our own values, so we shouldn't expect to come to the same conclusions. But we do want to, to base our, our assessments of climate change on, on what we uh, can consider is robust knowledge. There are some things that we do just know, and I think in, in my book I talk about if, if, you, if I throw a ball up in the air in this auditorium, I wish I had one, then we all expect it to come down. There's lots of stuff in climate change that we just know. But there are lots of things that we haven't tied down but actually could say we just know. It's about expanding that knowledge of what we know, of painting the pictures of what we know, um, so that populations can, uh, and individuals can form their own opinions on quite um, how we should respond. It's a matter of, of people bringing their own values uh, to the, to the uh, assessment of the seriousness of the um, issue. Uh, it, it, it needs to be a democratic issue. It shouldn't be up to uh, the academics to dictate what should happen. Um, but equally, in that uh, wider uh, discourse, we need to make sure that what is understood, what, what we know to be true, is, is well communicated and that is used as the foundation across all these different uh, discussions. Um, so getting the best information we can today really matters. Uh, and uh, some of that, if some of that information is limited by uh, uh, humanity not being at the stage of understanding things, well, that doesn't worry me. Selavi, there's some things we don't understand. But if that information is limited because we aren't combining understanding that is well known, but in different disciplines, or in different places, then I think the message is that we need to do better. Um, there are lots of foundational questions that might take a long time to resolve, but there are lots of opportunities uh, to know a lot more in the short term by bringing disciplines together. Um, so I might say that some of the apples are indeed high up in the tree, but there is a lot of low-hanging fruit. Uh, and I hope that uh, my book describes some of those. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dave. I hope that's whetted, whetted the appetites of people to learn more and to read the book. And to ask questions. <laughs> and to ask questions, but not yet. But you can start formulating questions. But just now we're going to have um, Tom, um, I think you're up on the podium too, yeah? Um, give us some, some of your thoughts about um, the book and uh, what Dave shared with us. Um, Thanks for that, Dave. I'm Tom Sheldon from the Science Media Centre. Um, thanks for inviting me to uh, speak today and to discuss your uh, new book. 
I know Dave um, through my day job, which mostly involves me badgering climate scientists like him uh, for quotes and interviews for the BBC or the Daily Mail or Sky News. So I feel like Dave's getting his own back a little bit on me now and making me um, uh, stand up. So I'm going to speak for about 10 or 12 minutes. Um, but, but first, I'd just like to congratulate Dave on writing a highly readable and accessible and unpretentious book about climate science. And there are lots of popular books out there about climate change, but rather fewer on climate science. And I really think that that's what this is. The more I read of it, the more I started feeling that there's more of a difference between the two than I'd initially thought, particularly when it comes to the intersection uh, of science and the media, which is where I sit. But I confess to feeling a bit nervous about giving this response. I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not sure I'd even be very good or effective in an argument with a climate skeptic. Because of my job, I probably know more about climate change than the average person, but on climate science itself, maybe not much more, certainly not in any intricate detail about the data or the physics. And the more I read of Dave's book, the more he made me think about whether that really matters. I'll come back to that in a minute, and I'll reflect on some other themes that his book raised with me, including trust, uncertainty, controversy, and the limits of communicating complex science in the public domain. But I'll start with Dave's distinction between climate science and other disciplines and this concept of what he calls the one-shot bet that he's, he's mentioned himself. And I hope I'm paraphrasing fairly here that in climate science, we don't have any parallel systems or planets in this case where experimental conditions can be set and a range of outcomes examined. And this makes it quite different to something like um, cardiology where you have almost unlimited hearts to test on from humans or pigs or mice. Um, and in climate science, as Dave puts it, we are predicting behavior under con conditions we've never seen before. Forget about repeatability. We don't even have one observation of the behavior we're trying to predict in the future. And that made me wonder if this distinction might be important when it comes to communicating climate science to the public. The absence of the kind of proof that, say, a clinical trial can provide certainly seems to make the science more contestable. Skeptics have long targeted modelling as unreliable guesswork, where you can make your model say anything you want. And all the way through this section of Dave's book, I couldn't help but make comparisons with the pandemic, as the same was true there, very similar to climate change in this one-shot bet way that Dave describes, because although we had a lot of data to base expectations on, we only had one chance to get it right. One pandemic, one course of action, one possible future. And as Dave puts it, when it comes to climate change, there's only one 21st century, and we don't have the results from that yet. And those parallels give me cause for both pessimism, pessimism and optimism. Pessimism because it shows how easy it is to get it wrong when there are so many competing political and economic interests. But optimism because of how the public and the media responded to scientists throughout the pandemic. And just as with climate change, it's been a bumpy ride. But broadly speaking, the overwhelming majority of the public and journalists put their trust in scientists, accepted the uncertainties, acknowledged the trade-offs. That's not to say that everyone just blithely accepted everything that was said. It had to be backed up by evidence. But that most of us looked to the science for the very best guidance mustn't be taken for granted. And that means being meticulous when presenting possibilities, uncertainties, worst-case scenarios, etc. as much as in climate science as in infectious disease or epidemiology. And when scientists do that scrupulously, the public listen, the media listen, and it succeeds. When it can fail is when scientists use it as leverage. 
A few scientists, not many, I'm glad, glad to say, but a few, sailed very close to the wind in the pandemic, brushing uncertainty under the carpet or straying out, outside their lane of expertise to overclaim for a scenario and insist that politicians must do A or B would definitely happen. And the same happens from time to time in climate science as well. I can understand the temptation, but I think ultimately it's self-defeating. Science was put under the spotlight during the pandemic, just as climate science was after Climategate. Yet in both cases, science and scientists came out as respected and trusted as ever, maybe even more so. And that level of trust is maintained precisely because scientists communicate within the bounds that evidence allows without being selective or trying to tell people what to do. And all this raises the subject of uncertainty, another major theme of Dave's book. And one line that stood out for me was when he writes, to not tell the uncertainty story is to not tell the climate change story. And it's an important point, and I agree with it. Some people have been nervous over the years that talking too much about uncertainty undermines the rock-solid stuff and makes it look like scientists don't really know anything. But it feels to me that uncertainty is about honesty. Stating what you're sure about but acknowledging what you're not demonstrates that you're honest, and that engenders trust. I think Dave puts it as not confusing certainty with confidence. If the scientific community can get that balance right, I think it goes a long way to addressing Dave's challenge one in the book, which he puts nicely as how to balance justified arrogance with essential humility. And at the Science Media Centre, we have a number of phrases that we keep coming back to. Humility needed is one that we often repeat about scientists and about ourselves. But that humility also gives you license the other way. When you're confident, don't be afraid to hammer it home over and over again to politicians or journalists or anyone whose ear you can get. And I think that's the kind of justified arrogance that Dave is referring to. And I think we have a common language when it comes to uncertainty. So much of climate science, so much of climate science makes predictions in ranges or express, expresses temperature rise in terms of probabilities and so on. And that language is very familiar and accessible to you know, normal people. We're, we're used to it in everyday life. The trick is not to be lured into appearing too certain or it will come back to bite you as it did when one scientist confidently predicted in 2009 that the Arctic would be ice-free by the summer of 2015. Dave has spoken about the deep questions in climate science that can get crowded out that, by the passion that people have for their views of the subject. And I think this was a case in point and it backfired. And honesty about uncertainty goes down well with journalists too. Politicians and campaigners trade indefinitive slogans and sound bites. It's rare to hear a politician do an interview where they admit with much humility the things that they're not sure about or the answers they don't have, which could explain why their trust ratings have been rock bottom for years. And I've always liked Dave instinctively because he's not a soundbite merchant. You can actually see him physically contort his face with the effort of making sure that the next thing he's about to say is definitely right and doesn't cut corners or brush something as inconvenient as uncertainty under the carpet. And it's that approach to detail and accuracy that people look to the scientific profession to provide. I want to say a bit about controversy and the place of science in public discourse and in journalism. There are whole chunks of Dave's book that address some of the controversies, or at least contentious areas, in climate science itself. For example, on interdisciplinary studies, or whether the research framework that we have is fit for purpose, or the way that models are constructed and tested. 
And that's crucially important stuff for scientists. But of course, in the wider world, these are largely invisible problems, and it's not what most people think of as controversy. What was controversial was back in around 2010, when the most fundamental claims of climate science were being openly challenged and distrusted in the mainstream media. The tree ring stuff, the hockey stick, the pause in warming, the pause in warming was it all just natural? Even one winter when it snowed a lot, that was controversial. And climate skeptics had a field day. And that was a pitched battle which skeptics fought with rhetoric and innuendo, and scientists fought with evidence. But scroll forward just 10 years, and things look very different, in the UK at least. Across the mainstream, business, political parties, and the media have all broadly accepted the fundamental robustness of climate science. And so in that way, science has won. The skeptics don't get airtime anymore, and the questions being asked now are never, is climate change really happening? but rather how fast and what can we do about it. But is that enough? It certainly doesn't mean that climate science in all its infernal complexity is truly represented in the media and communicated to the public in a way that climate science professionals would recognize. Dave raises this question of the difficulties of making space in public discourse for the middle ground. But he also accepts that it's not plausible, I'm quoting here, that it's not plausible to expect most people to want to understand climate science. And I think I agree with him on that pragmatic point. People expect you scientists to deal with all that stuff. But I, I think there's a lot of encouragement to be found here. Because there's a big difference between not understanding the intricacies of the science and being completely docile. Back to the pandemic comparison again. Remember, we were being given a huge amount of scientific information every day about the stats, the variants, the treatments, the vaccines, the R number, and on and on. And the public was certainly willing to absorb a certain amount of the hard science when it was presented clearly and relevantly to their lives. And I think we see that in climate change as well, in probabilities of extreme weather, uh, ranges of temperature, sources of greenhouse gas emissions, and so on as well of, uh, of course as all the science and engineering around attribution, interventions and solutions. And this is complex stuff, but when it's presented clearly and relevantly, people want to know and they listen. And that's where the media come in, because so much of what the public read and hear about climate science originates in the media, whether you love it or hate it. Because the media still exert great influence around what is accepted as fact and what's contested but also because journalists really are interested in the science as well. And Dave makes an important, here, a po important point here when, when he says, to quote, climate change doesn't fit well with conventional journalism. And I agree with that to a large extent. Climate change can be a big challenge to report, as apart from the extreme events, it's mostly gradual and imperceptible day to day. And that doesn't lend itself to the news agenda which likes to report what's visible and tangible right now. As Dave puts it, the drivers on the media are to report what's new. So the way climate science is depicted in the news and the way it's considered by climate scientists themselves can be two different things. But I do wonder if that matters an awful lot in the great scheme of things. Dave says the constant stream of reports about the latest results gives an impression of false confidence in what climate science and climate models can provide. And I think he's right about that. But my sense from the other side of the overall impression that the media gives is of scientists who care about the world, working at pace to understand and advise on something real and relevant. And if that skims over some of the complexities of things like modelling and drivers 
and interactions. I don't feel that's necessarily always at the expense of good public understanding. It's just the messy and imperfect media that we have, which to some degree just represents what people are willing to absorb when life is busy. So to finish off, the public are listening, and you are widely trusted as a community, and that's a good place to be. And the link between the science and people's lives, I think, is more clearly drawn than ever. But that raises the stakes, because as Dave points out, academic research in climate science is a source of information on which we are founding the future of human society. Academic understanding is of itself a driver of social change. Unquote. And that's not true of all strands of scientific research, many of which are just trying to find out useful stuff without any real deadline. Again, just as with the pandemic, the public and policymakers are looking to climate science to provide not just knowledge, but clear signposts to the one path that we're permitted to go down. I know Dave worries about the difficulties in communicating a nuanced view of what we know and what we don't know without undermining calls to act, and I think he's absolutely right to do so. But I think the scientists communicating complex climate science without fear or favour, acknowledging the audience, answering the questions they're asking, keeping it relevant without dumbing it down, and admitting all of that messy uncertainty is exactly what's got us from the horrible place that we were with the public, politicians and journalists only a decade ago to where we are now. So Dave, I'm going to finish with that and hand over to Catherine and then I look forward to a discussion. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thanks so much, Tom. We have uh, Catherine Brown. There we go. We can see you. You're up on the big screen, Catherine. Thank you. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. And um, uh, apologies, everyone, that I can't be with you in person. And also apologies that my head is so big on this screen, which um, <laughs> is probably a bit disconcerting, but hopefully it's okay. <laughs> Um, so, uh, as Elizabeth said, I'm Director of Climate Change and Evidence at Wildlife Trusts. Uh, I know David um, in part because he was my severest critic uh, when I was a bit younger working at, for, on the 2009 UK Climate Projections uh, with the Met Office and the UK Climate Impacts Programme. So David and his colleague Lenny Smith, who's also mentioned uh, more than once in the book, um, were, were always there. Uh, really pushing us to make sure we were talking about uncertainty correctly, uh, and I'm sure he'll remember that. But he also doesn't know that I was one of the early uh, students who was running climateprediction.net off my computer um, back in 2003. So uh, I actually go back even a bit further than, than he might recall with the work that he's done over the years. And I've absolutely loved reading his book. I uh, feel very privileged to be able to, to do this panel and um, uh, bring out, I suppose, a couple of more practical considerations. So I'm very much at the decision-making end uh, of the spectrum of using climate science. So definitely not a climate scientist, but I've worked with climate scientists for nearly 20 years now, both in the government and, and now um, in a role doing delivery at the Wildlife Trust. And I wanted to pull out, um, as Tom has done, a few little snippets from, from David's book that really uh, hit home for me in terms of the way that I've used climate information over the years. So he said, 
we don't necessarily have the capability to accurately predict what will happen as the climate changes, which is what he's been talking about in his discussion. But he also says even if we are able to model that future, we don't know it's the right future because we have such a spread of uncertainty. That's very much the way that we have had to use climate information over the past 20 years and things like adaptation planning. We have no idea in that uncertainty range which is the most likely prediction and therefore we've never used climate projections as predictions. We use them as information to input into a system. Um, but that word prediction is really interesting. It's one that we, we very deliberately never used uh, in any of the work we did on climate projections um, in DEFRA and, and when I went to the Climate Change Committee as well. He also uh, has a really important section, which many of you will be familiar with, where he talks about the fact that important parts of the climate system are still not accurately reflected in climate models. They're very hard to include in climate models, including the dynamics uh, in some of our deep ocean environments and also some of our feedback effects. For example, feedback from wildfires, very topical issue this year and one in particular that worries me. If you look at the latest IPCC assessment, uh, in the Working Group 1 report, there's a section talking about the fact that we have these limitations with wildfire feedbacks. Um, and these are the things that worry me as a decision maker, that, that these are the things that really lead to uh, extremes and, and this non-linearity and, and the chaos in the system, which is what we have to deal with uh, as decision makers. So can climate science even get close to the things we care about or I care about as a decision maker? That's really the key question that the book addresses. And the events of the last two, three months, um, particularly these unprecedented changes we're seeing in uh, land surface temperature, sea surface temperature, Antarctic sea ice, this has all happened since David has actually finished his book, but it's very, very relevant. If you look at the response of both the scientific community and the government to what's happening, I see a lot of curiosity from climate scientists about these events that are unfolding. I see very little, particularly from government, I've seen nothing at all of guidance, of advice, of projections of what we might have to deal with as decision makers over the next year or 18 months. And that worries me a lot as a decision maker. Those are the things we care about. What do I need to do to react over the next 12 months to presumably a much greater risk of unprecedented changes in the UK? Obviously, we're already seeing that globally as well. And I just wanted to very briefly give two examples of how we've applied this problem of uncertainty in climate science to some of the work I've done, um, both in government and out the Wildlife Trust. So uh, I've, I've spotted some of you in the audience. I can actually only see the backs of your heads, strangely, but I know there are some CCRA authors in the audience, and the climate change risk assessment is something I've worked on. Uh, the first three assessments between 2012 and 2021 uh, there's work going on which I'm not involved in now on the fourth assessment, but if you look at how we've dealt with the idea of climate risk in those assessments, we haven't tried to either collapse the uncertainty down uh, to try and give a, a closer representation of an actual prediction of risk. We've actually developed a method that tries to embrace all of that uncertainty uh, and bring in as much evidence as possible to look at the case for more action. That's what the method has been about. What is the case for further action? Not what is a, the best description of the future magnitude or likelihood of a change. So that's quite an interesting example. Um, you can go look at the, the third climate change risk assessment, which came out with, that's the most recent one that came out in 2021, to see how that method is applied and how it's very deliberately been chosen so that we can work with that uncertainty in the system, but still give advice 
to government and to decision makers on adaptation priorities in particular. I wouldn't say that assessment has been particularly successful at influencing the government's latest national adaptation programme and that a lot of the material hasn't been able to then be filtered through into, into public policy and discourse, but there are other reasons for that, which we can come back to in the discussion as well. And the second example I just wanted to give is some of the work we do now uh, through my role at the Wildlife Trust, which is very much about action on the ground, day-to-day decision-making, trying to boost resilience. We're one of the largest landholders in the UK, so you imagine we have uh, a couple of thousand nature reserves, but also we're very interested in, in impacts on UK nature. We have a very big focus on short-term risk. Um, so unlike big infrastructure providers, I would say a lot of the nature organisations, the land-based organisations, are interested in short-term risk. And actually, that's where climate science is, is in some ways most efficient, because we can't produce uh, short-term projections of climate change. They don't actually exist. I was looking back at, um, thinking about David's comments about how do we know if we've, if we've got the right picture. You know, we can look and, and do some backcasting and see if models uh, match the observations of climate, but we can also look back at past projections to see how well they've projected what we have now. And I went back and looked at the UK SIP 98 projections, uh, which were one of the sets of projections for the UK that included the 2020s. Uh, and if you look at annual average temperature, the range in UK SIP 98 was between 0.4 of a degree uh, and about 1.6 degrees. And I think this is from a, a 1961 to 1990 average for the 2020s. And we're, we're within that range. We're about 0.9 degrees, according to the, the latest UK SIP, um, UK CP18 scenarios. But actually, for me, for decision makers, for um, organisations trying to protect the natural environment, for example, Obviously, that doesn't really tell us what we need to know. What we need to know is the impacts, the events that we're having to cope with. Last year, we saw um, a catastrophic outbreak of avian flu across the UK. It's not clear what the climate change link to that outbreak was, but there is likely to be a global climate change link to uh, outbreaks of HPAI, highly pathogenic avian influenza. Uh, in the UK and across the UK last year, we've lost um, several tens of thousands of birds across different populations. So in one species alone, we've lost 15,000 birds to that disease last year. It's still hitting birds this year as well. These are the things we have to deal with. Predicting these sorts of impacts is really hard. Uh, and the climate science takes us some way towards that, but it's all those other disciplines that David was talking about, the economics, the social science, the applied models that you, that you use the projections in, you know, these are the things that we're having to react to. And he also has a whole section talking about competing factors. So for us, a lot of it is down to capacity, to money, to ability to control. So next week I'm doing an emergency disaster planning scenario with all of the chief execs of the wildlife trusts. And that's about what can we control if, say, we have an unprecedented wildfire event next year, which is not out of the realms of possibility at all. What are the things that we can control? Um, and when you read David's book, you'll see it's full of kitchen-based analogies. He really uh, goes to town with analogies about his kettle. So I just wanted to, to finish my little segment with another kitchen-based analogy. So when we think about how we're using this information in decision-making, I would say it's when you open your fridge and you see what you've got in there and you have to rustle up whatever you can get your hands on to make yourself a meal. That's what we do with planning at the minute. It's not... Uh, 
looking at a recipe, getting an ideal set of ingredients and going out and finding them, because those ingredients don't exist for us at the minute. So we have to do the, the alternative approach to making the best of what we can. Dave has, I was going to use his quote that he's already used, so I'll use another one from him, but he said, if you want to make an airplane, you don't start with a bicycle. Um, but in this situation, in, in, in the decision making we do now, we only have the bicycle. So we have to try and see what we can do to, to make some sensible decisions, bringing in economics, bringing in social science, and often bringing in common sense to try and use that information. Um, so yes, the climate pro projections, predictions, you know, do have real value for us. We never use them as a prediction. Uh, but really that impact information and that short-term planning is what we could really use more of at the minute and um, hopefully that will be the basis of some discussion. Thanks. Thanks so much Catherine, thank you Tom and thank you to our author Dave. We do now have time for questions so um, I'm going to collect some hands uh, but I'll just ask is there anything, any, any questions online we can go for or are people still gathering their thoughts online? Yeah, we only have one question online so far, so... Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, I, uh, we have to give you a... Um, uh, everyone wait for the microphone, otherwise people online can't hear. Sorry, that reminded me, thank you. So, shall we just um, start with that? Yeah, we, we can add some questions um, from the audience as well. Yeah, so we have a question on migration. Uh, so the question is simply, uh, what are your thoughts on climate migration? Um, uh, as people move uh, or are forced to move by unlivable conditions, is it inevitable and how do we prepare for it? So I think it'd be a bit like sort of mid-range uh, in terms of time scale. Okay, so um, because at the moment we've only got one online while people gather their thoughts for questions, we have um, one, two, and is there? Um, so uh, we'll go Red Jacket, Svenja, and we'll go um, sort of... Uh, that, whatever colour your jacket is, tan, yep. And then we'll go, I think we've got um, third, we've got blue jacket at the front. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, okay, so we'll go one, two, three, yeah? Um, have, you got, have you got a mic? Yeah, brilliant. And then we'll have four questions for our panel to um, address. Okay, well, thank you very much and congratulations, Dave. I haven't read the book, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I have a question about the, what some describe the Wild West or the arms race of climate analytics. And it sort of touches on how we translate science um, into something that decision makers can use. I do a lot of work with climate tools and you know, there's a whole service industry that has emerged. And you know, I think that has come a long way, but we all know that there are huge challenges and there's a competition of getting it right, of being more precise, um, which, you know, unintended consequences. So I would be really interested in your views on that because I don't think the answer is killing off that competition, but how can we, well, rein in might sound very harsh, but you know, what's the right approach? Um, I would really love your views on that. Thanks. So that was a question on the Wild West arms race and translating climate science into um, something usable for decision makers. We've got, you've got a mic there? Brilliant. Yep. James Knight, I've been following the climate uh, debate since the 1980s with the books of um, theory, uh, books by James Lovelock and his Gaia theory. And uh, has made me very pessimistic. My uh, question is quite simple. What is your unscientific gut feeling 
for the future of the planet? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Okay, there's an existential question, gut feeling about the future of the planet. And our fourth question before we'll go to the panel for responses. Yes, my name is Stefano Bonf. I'm involved in a climate data science project. And the question is, do you think it's time now to move towards data science more than science? And therefore, the approach is completely different. We are going to have more an approach from bottom up than from top down. And let's say, to add to this, I know Oxford has been is implementing, I don't know, this climate net worldwide. Is, what is the status on us? I will be curious. Thank you. Thanks so much. So um, our panel, you don't have to answer every question, but we'll, I think we'll start with Dave as you're the, the author, and then I'll um, open up to um, uh, Catherine and Tom. Uh, okay. Um, so answers to those questions do risk being fairly depressing, I guess. The, <laughs> the first question was about uh, migration. Is it inevitable? And uh, um, my own sense, and I think I do actually write it in, in the book, is that in, increased pressures on migration are in, inevitable. I think that's what uh, we just can expect with climate change. Climate change uh, will change where you have access to grow certain crops or access to certain water availability, and, and, and so the balance between nations will change and that will create, create a pressure. So is that not... Uh, Okay, um, so um, uh, I, I think the questions on migration are unavoidable, um, but uh, that then throws it back onto governance and policy and governments and, and how do we handle that. Um, uh, huge, huge issues there, I'm not an expert on it, but, I, but it does worry me. Um, Svenja, um, the arms race on climate, climate analytics is, is uh, a very interesting one. It does, it, it worries me um, that, uh, I, I, th I think the answer there is that the, the demand needs to change. At the moment, there's a there's the kind of pressure, or you know more about this than I do really, but um, I suspect the demand is there in terms of we need to do something about climate change in our, our business, our organisation. Uh, so what information is out there? If somebody comes along and says, we will tell you what will happen, that's just a lot easier to deal with. So we kind of need to change the demand into saying, okay, we know there are going to be big uncertainties here. What we need from you is a good characterization of those presented in a way that we can build into our systems. Um, so we certainly want that competition, uh, but my fear is that at the moment, the kind of worst ones might well win out, whereas those trying to do the, the, the best kind of approaches might not. Um, though I have to say, whenever I speak to you, I, I get the impression that actually things are a lot better than I, I, I originally thought. So we can certainly talk about that later. Um, should I? I think you should, should definitely answer the, the third one. I think everyone should the answer third the one. third question. What is, what is my yeah. gut feeling? Um, I, I, I swing. Um, very strongly on this. So there's certainly, uh, there's certainly a lot of time when I, 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 my feeling is extremely pessimistic. Um, I, I don't see us acting strongly enough to respond to reduce greenhouse gases. 
Uh, I also don't see the, the level of debate as being sufficient to achieve that change. So I can get very pessimistic. However, on the optimistic side, I would say, uh, I, I look back and I say, when society changes, when things change in society, whether that's the advent of, of the internet or many other things, it changes quickly, much quicker than, than I would anticipate. So I don't quite see the route to uh, a, a really better, more optimistic world, but I'm still essentially optimistic, and I think it comes down to when things change, when populations change and choose to have a different focus, they can change very, very quickly indeed. An author's prerogative, I think an answer to the data science would be quite nice, and then Kevin <laughs> and Tom can answer one or two. Uh, so in terms of the status of climateprediction.net uh, in, um, in Oxford, to be honest, I'm, I'm not uh, an entirely uh, up to date with quite where they are. I will be uh, hopefully meeting uh, people involved in that next week. <laughs> um, but the project as a whole moved uh, away somewhat from uh, its initial aims that I was involved with, which was about understanding model uncertainty. And it moved into uh, sort of what's called weather at home and uh, using models for um, attributing changes, uh, attributing specific events like the I'm not sure it would actually do the, the wildfires in Greece, but that kind of specific event. So it's moved away from the sort of thing that uh, I, I perhaps think is most important. It reflected the different interests. Um, yeah, so that's where climate prediction has gone. But it's still, I believe, going strong, but in a slightly different role to the way I discuss it in my book. Uh, Catherine, do you want to jump in on any of those questions? Yeah, I'll, I'll have a go at one and three very quickly, Elizabeth. Um, so migration, just because I know it's it's been covered in each climate change risk assessment. Now, Svenja is a CCRA author. Elizabeth is also involved in, in the upcoming CCRA 4, so they, they might be good to talk to you afterwards. But just to say that is covered as a risk. It's been well documented, the risk, if you call it a risk to the UK. Generally, in the past, it's been viewed that in intra-country migration is probably a bigger issue than inter-country migration, mainly because it's very difficult for a lot of people to leave, even if they want to. Um, and I think we are seeing that at the moment play out a little bit, but, but those projections do exist, so um, the CCRA is a good place to go and have a look. Uh, my, my level of pessimism, um, I think moving from the Climate Change Committee to the Wildlife Trusts, I've become both more and less uh, optimistic about the future. I think when you, dealing with climate change is difficult enough, particularly when you've been working on it for a long time, but when you throw in nature loss as well, that's a real double whammy of um, really difficult issues to deal with. So in that sense, it makes me more pessimistic. And obviously I think, you know, anyone who works on climate change will feel pessimistic, at least from time to time, as Dave says, I swing back and forth as well, given where we are and maybe when I started working on climate change um, 20 years ago, I, I might have thought we'd be in a very different place by now. That being said, I'm also uh, much more optimistic in the job I do now because I see these glimmers of, of action on the ground. Um, and I agree, change can happen very, very quickly. Uh, and we're seeing a, a, a groundswell, really, of action, both on climate and nature, which I find really heartening. So, I think things will get worse before they get better, but I think we have a real capacity to change very quickly. Great, and Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't comment on any of the climate science. I think all I'll say is um, I feel optimistic about um, just how 
quickly and willingly public opinion um, comes round to the evidence, um, not just on uh, climate change, but just about every other subject that, that I've covered at the Science Media Centre. It's um, you know you 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 get the uh, shrill hysterical arguments, um, but evidence tends to win out in the long run. So that's the bit I'm optimistic about. Pessimistic, it's a very personal point of view, but I can't remember the last time we saw any actual leadership from government um, on this or any other subject. They always lag behind, they always follow short-term um, uh, demands and what they think will get them voted in next time. Um, so if, if, if any good things are going to happen um, in terms of how we deal with climate change, then I think it will be despite governments and not because of them. Apart, sure. apart from that, I think my opinion is probably no more valid than any other person in this room. Yeah, I'm not sure if you take the last bit as optimistic or pessimistic, but I um, appreciate it. Um, do you, I, I can see a question there. I'll just go see if we've got any more online. Yeah, can we go with two, two online? And then um, and we'll try and keep the, the questions and the answers short so we can get as many as possible. Um, so I have a question I feel it goes really to the core of your argument, uh, which is you don't have a choice unless you have control. What makes you think that we actually have control over the future climate? Yeah. And then uh, the second one is uh, actually asking you for some projection, uh, so some assessment of the probability distribution, but it is stripped of carbon capture technologies. If we didn't have carbon capture technologies, what range of temperatures are most probable in our present trajectory? Mm. Okay, so we'll take two online and then we've got a hand there. And um, I just see if there's, oh, and we'll go right at the back because we haven't gone to the back yet. So first to say thanks so much for that, because I found all the, all the talks absolutely fascinating. Um, to David, can you just be a bit more specific about what depresses you about the quality of societal debate? You reference that, but is it just the predictable that politicians don't lead? Or, and what does a good quality societal debate look like to you? And also, just related to that, can you just respond to Tom's point about the people who over the years have said that talking about uncertainty is dangerous because it's seized on by the people who don't want climate action. Are you still not worried about that? Sorry, can you just tell us your name and... Sorry, I'm Fiona Fox. I'm a colleague of Tom's from the Science Thank Media Centre. Thank you. That's my boss. <laughs> and uh, we have... Do you have a mic up there at the back? You do? Great. Yes, I have a microphone. Can you hear me? Yes. Brilliant. So I work actually in the energy sector and I completely agree with the, with the sort of uh, view that maybe governments are not acting strongly enough to actually impose the change that we want to, want to see happening. And just to give an example, um, in Nigeria, let's say, flaring has been banned since 1989, I think, or the early 90s. And what is actually happening is that the companies are com continuing to flare and governments are imposing these fines on flaring, but it's cheaper for the companies to pay, pay the flare fine and actually continue the production than to actually address the issue. And this is despite the government sort of imposing higher and higher fees. So my question is, what do you think are the actual practical steps that could be made to, Im to, to make this change a reality? And if it's not the drivers, then what are the barriers that we need to address? 
Great. So we've got some real action-oriented questions. Um, you know, what are the choices of no control? We've got looking at um, a sort of quite technical look at, look at climate change, um, uh, carbon carbon capture um, technology, and then we've um, uh, what depresses you about society's debate, and then um, something that takes us away from climate science to the sort of policy regime. And I think it's very nice because it links back to, you know, we need input from all different disciplines, which is. Um, if we know what's wrong and we've got the rules about what's wrong, why aren't we seeing the right things happening? I'm going to paraphrase in that way. Again, I'm give give author prerogative um, to David to start. Thank, thanks, Elizabeth. So, yeah. So, um, I think multidisciplinarity is really important, and I've been really privileged uh, in my career so far to work with lots of, of different uh, people in lots of different disciplines. But I'm not an expert in all these disciplines, and I'm, so I'm not sure I can answer all these questions. Um, so what was the first one? What makes us think uh, we have control? Um, so uh, notwithstanding the, the final question, um, I, 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 th I think I go back to this fact that the societies can change very quickly. It's, sort of, uh, it's back to that balance between optimism and pessimism. The, the scale at which, for instance, uh, offshore wind has, has ramped up in the UK as, is, is, is kind of amazing. It just, it just seems to me that there are aspects like that where, where when we as a society decide that that's what we want to do, things can happen pretty pretty quickly and I would say in that case without any so it's not my expertise but without any really big push from the government it's sort of a, a much more gentle uh, sense that that's the direction we want to go but still we've seen a big big change having said that in terms of the amounts that we need to supply all our needs we're still a long way up I'm very aware of other people Elizabeth and and other people in the room know more about, uh, about these things. Um, uh, I'm not sure I quite understood the second online question. What is our online trajectory without CDR? Uh, without, um, well, we, we have one question on why do you think we actually can control the planet? Yeah. Choose a pathway. The so that's what, is what I was getting at. I think, I think we can change energy systems, and that is about choosing the pathway. So if we if we choose to if we choose to invest in a change of our infrastructure, new infrastructure, new energy generation technologies, we can we can choose to do that, and that will change what the future is. Um, to, Sir, with what's the range of temperatures that seem most probable? Ah, yes, sorry. I, I, yes, sorry, I remember this. I, I, I apologies, uh, Marianne. Yes. So this is what, what, are the, what is the range of temperatures on our current trajectory without carbon capture and storage? I'm afraid I, I've got to say I, I don't know. This is, uh, the, in writing the book, it was kind of interesting. Each time I wanted to say something which actually had numbers, I then went spent an hour or two going back to quite what the IPCC was saying and what was projected, but I can't, I don't have those numbers. Um, if somebody else in the room does, they, they should put them in. Um, uh, Fiona, the, the quality, um, what depresses me about the quality of the uh, societal debate? Um, 
I think, as with most aspects of, of our, our society today, it is that, uh, too confrontational, it's too two-sided. Um, I don't think um, the presentation of, of climate change and the issues around climate change is present, I don't think it's presented in a way to engage people to ask their opinions, to get their views of, of what, of, to give them choices. And this is what it comes back to the sort of these ideas of, of futures. You can't choose to have a future without uh, global warming while also choosing to uh, make no changes to our energy infrastructure. That should not be on the table. But what should be on the table is saying, well, OK, you, you have the choice of not doing anything and, and ending up with this sort of future. You have the choice of doing something. And then you have choices of quite what that should look like. What would be the way you want, to, you want it to play out? There's, there's, seems to be the ways of leveraging our democracy, of, of our electoral systems, of saying, well, actually, you can get involved in this. This can be a debate of what do you want to do? Do you want, uh, do you want more onshore wind turbines? Do you, do you want more tidal lagoons? It's a, it's a matter of engagement. And I don't think that engagement with uh, the, the, the population in the UK is, is very strong. It's very much a matter of climate change is bad, which it is. Um, are you going to object to it? Yes, a bit, a lot, very much, but I don't like stop, just stop oil. Or it, It's not getting into the choices that people should have. That's, that's a trip. Tom, yeah. do you want to pick? I think with the time left, yeah. no, I think I'll probably Okay, Catherine? Um, just very quickly on uh, CCS, um, I'm going to ask a slightly different question. There are scenarios uh, of looking to meet the UK's net zero target without CCS. Um, we're interested in that as an environmental NGO because CCS and, and particularly BEX um, has a lot of negative trade-offs for land use and for nature in the UK and globally as well. Uh, Green Alliance have done a really good report called Shaping UK Land Use. <clears throat> so if anyone's interested in the trade-offs between carbon capture and storage and other, other removals and, and nature-based removals as well, that's a really good report to start with. And um, I, I'll just quickly respond to the fourth question about the flaring. It's really frustrating, isn't it, when the rules are in place and the laws are in place and legislation, but the, the, the fines are so small it just sacks the tax. So it's just really bad policy. And, um, you know, we don't have to worry about enforcing that policy if the fines are too low. So um, weak policies, weak enforcement is, I think, a huge problem. Um, so, you know, sometimes we don't have the right policies to start with, but worse when the policies are sort of in the right direction but not done well. Um, I think we've got time for um, just uh, a case of some hands went up fast, one there in blue, the blue shirt, one there in the, the, the black jacket, and then I think we'll have to... Quick questions and very quick responses, and then I think we'll just squeeze two in. Um, Oliver Bettis, um, so we know there are tipping points in the climate system, and we know that they might cause climate change to run faster in the future if that happens, you know, heading against sword hothouse earth. People are starting to talk about geoengineering and solar radiation management. Other people are saying, if you start talking about it, it's a moral hazard, which will prevent people from actually reducing emissions. So where do you stand on that? Is it better to start talking about it and researching it or, or not? Yeah, we'll get, we'll get the, this question and then we'll have some quick answers to these. I'm sorry. 
Um, so I'm, I'm a bit cautious about um, the technology and uh, um, sciences we use to um, predict our economic future. So I'm just wondering, are there any potential risks of the data we collect while we are doing the climate modeling? And um, are there any risk of the technology we apply to tackle um, the climate, climate um, difficulty existed? And um, like how the uh, how this application we are doing right now, the effort we are doing right now could impact other uh, sustainable development goal indirectly. And um, are there any guidelines we can um, use to e evaluate those effects? Thanks. So two really interesting questions on technology. One on um, if we're hitting tipping points. Um, what do what do the panel think about geoengineering the moral hazard linked to that? And the other question I'm um, linking to sustainable development goals. I imagine thinking of what's happening in lower income countries and um, you know the, the risk of how we're applying the technologies in the context of that. So we've got about um, one and a half minutes. Solar radiation management it's just my view, but I'm concerned about the moral hazard. I so I wouldn't cut off research, but I, I think talking about it too much is, is, is just seems a, a, a way out and will be a, a bad thing. Um, uh, sustainable development goals. Um, so kind of the trivial answer is perhaps the most important one. Without tackling climate change, I can't see how we can meet many of the uh, sustainable development goals. I think. Yeah, I, I would be intrigued as to whether Catherine and indeed maybe uh, you, Elizabeth, might have something more to say about. Um, there wasn't time there for me. <laughs> uh, Catherine, quick, quick response. No, I agree with David. Um, I mean, we're even further away on a lot of the SDGs than we are on climate. Um, so, yeah, absolutely agree with everything he said. There's a lot of hazard with geoengineering. Agree, we don't want to use that as an excuse. And people are already doing that. You know, we see that every day. So, yes, it's a big risk. All right, so we've spent the last hour and a half agreeing with each other, so let me try to disagree. <laughs> um, I'll only touch on the one about um, geoengineering and SRM, a moral hazard. Um, I think the time to start research on anything is always yesterday. I think that talking about moral hazards with these things, dangerous distractions, we keep hearing that as well, about not, not just about geoengineering, but... Um, uh, CDR and CCS is a dangerous distraction. It might be a get out of jail, jail free cars for fossil fuel companies. I, I think that this is the wrong language to be using. This is a crisis. Um, we need all the answers that research can provide. And I don't think we should ever be afraid of what those answers are. We can only ever address these questions when we have as much research answer um, as possible. So I think we've got to be really careful not to be sort of seduced into the language of religion and stick with the language of science. Okay, well, what has is the language of economics. <laughs> so let me thank the audience, thank the audience who's here in person, thank the audience who came online, thank our wonderful panel, thank you. 
Tom, thank you, Catherine, thank our author, Dave. The book is for sale outside, and Dave will um, sign it for you, and you can carry on with your questions out there. Can I thank the LSE events team? Um, a lot of them all in the red shirts. Thank you so much. Can I thank the GRI people who are here helping? Um, Marion Dumas, who's doing the for questions online, and Alison Peacock, who's been always helps with most of our LS, uh, GRI events. So thank you, everyone. I've had a great time. The book is outside, so um, please go and buy it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.